Well, thank you all for being here or watching online. It is good for us to study this together. I'm gonna read Jonah 4. We're gonna start in verse five. And I wanna work through this text, first of all. We'll talk about it a little bit, and then we're gonna springboard to to, uh, describe the mercies of God in a unique way. So, Jonah chapter four, starting in verse five. I'm gonna read out of the New Living Translation for this because of a couple ways that this is worded. It says, then Jonah went out to the east side of the city and made a shelter to sit under as he waited to see what would happen to the city. And the Lord arranged, um, many Bibles will say appointed, which I do like appointed more. It feels like it's got a little more punch to the word. But nonetheless, the, the Lord God, he arranged for a leafy plant to grow there. And soon it spread its broad leaves over Jonah's head, shading him from the sun. This eased his discomfort, and Jonah was very grateful for the plant. But God also arranged for a worm. The next morning, at dawn, the worm, it ate through the stem of the plant so that it withered away. And as the sun grew hot, God arranged for a scorching east wind to blow on Jonah. The sun beat down on his head until he grew faint and wished to die. Death is certainly better than living like this, he exclaimed. Then God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry because the plant died? Yes, Jonah retorted, even angry enough to die. Then the Lord said, you know, you you feel sorry about the plant, though you did nothing to put it there. It came quickly and died quickly. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people living in spiritual darkness, not to mention all the animals. Shouldn't I feel sorry for such a great city? And that's how Jonah ends. You know, it's, it, it reminds me almost like a good film. It's, it's abrupt and yet conclusive in, in its own way. This book concludes with Jonah. He's flabbergasted that the Ninevites actually repented. And then he's disgruntled at God's mercy that was shown to them. Right? This could be described as Jonah's pity party. So God appointed the plant and appointed the worm and then also the scorching heat to be practical illustrations to reinforce his holy perspective on this whole ordeal. And why? Why Jonah was even sent to be this messenger and why these people deserved God's interaction with him. God concludes by asking Jonah if it's right that he should take pity upon these people. And that is the question we're gonna walk ourselves through. Is it right that God would take pity on those in Nineveh? What makes it just? What makes it consistent with his nature as portrayed in the biblical narrative from the beginning to the end, right? From creation and fall, and then you have the redemption that happens at the cross and the restoration at the end in Revelation. What makes it right that God would take pity upon these people? They did nothing. They didn't earn it. They didn't work hard enough. They were an evil people. They didn't didn't even know they needed God's mercy. That's why we are so much like the Ninevites in our own state. We don't even know we need it. But God takes pity on them as he does on us. What makes it right? I have three reasons that it's right that God takes pity on them. I wanna walk us through that. Each of these are God's characteristics. The first is that God is creator. 
it's right that he takes pity because he's the creator. He created them. He literally created them so he can do what he wants with them, right? If he created them so he can do it. So God finds value in their lives because he is the maker of their lives. Genesis 1.27 teaches us this fantastic, not, not, not only principle, but profound truth in scripture and one that guides us even today. I'm actually surprised how practical this verse is in today's uh, society, in, in, our own, in our own culture, how important this verse is. This is a top 10 verse today in average conversations because of what it says. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Now another verse that's similar would be Colossians 1, and that whole passage is fantastic, but the part I wanna draw our attention to is this one phrase in verse 16. It says, all things were created through him, talking about Christ, and for him. Friends, we see without question that God is glorified in creating us. It brings him joy and pleasure and honor to create, particularly create human beings because they are made in his image. Isaiah 64, verse eight says it this way. But now, O Lord, you are our father. We are the clay and you are the potter. We are all the work of your hand. So Jonah pushed back on God's mercy to the people, but God can do what he wants. The same way a potter molds the clay in whatever way that he or she deems best. And when we consider God's role as our creator, our minds should recall the famous passage in Psalm 139, which speaks to the intricate detail that God designs every human being. Psalm 139, starting in verse 13, it says it this way. You made all the delicate inner parts of my body and knit me together in my mother's womb. Thank you for making me so wonderfully complex. Your workmanship is marvelous, how well I know it. You watched me as I was being formed in utter seclusion as I was woven together in the dark of the womb. Friends, whether, like we might read this and, and, and feel all the warm fuzzies that are good about this God and how we, but like this applies to our enemies. This applies to Nineveh. All these people who are far from God, people who make us angry, people who cut you off in traffic, people who you don't think deserve God's mercy, they were all intricately designed by God in the womb. He saw every little bit of them. And so not only is that true for, for your own child that's precious and you know wonderful in your own way, in, in that way, but also for the people that you might look down upon. This psalm reminds us that the created order is not random, it's not accidental, but it's in perfect fulfillment of God's plan for each of his created beings. And so Jonah and the Ninevites and you and I, we are all created with specific gifting and talents and physical makeup and emotional temperament and intellectual capacity as God intended. We are not built by mistake. All of it glorifies God from our external appearances to the internal personalities, all that stuff. And what a joy this should bring us. What a peace that should bring us. You know, if, if somebody is prone to arrogance or hubris because of their skill and their abilities or even their, you know, dashing good looks or whatever it might be, well, then let them remember that God gave those skills to them. And so that person must steward those skills faithfully. It wasn't their own abilities. God put all those things in their body and their ability to do well in certain ways. 
if you are prone to insecurity about personal weaknesses in one way or another, again, physical, internal, whatever it may be. Let us remember God gave those things to us and we must let his power excel in our weakness. 2 Corinthians 12, nine puts it this way. My grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. So we can remember all these dynamics of God's intricate design in our lives. It can convict us if we're prideful. It can strengthen us if we're feeling insecure or whatever it may be. But let us also recognize we must use the gifting God gave us to maximize our life for his glory. He is our creator. So let's fulfill the words of 1 Peter 4.10. As each has received a gift, talking in this case a spiritual gift from God, those who are born again, you've received a special gift slash uh, anointing and calling to use that gift well. As each has received it, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. For many of us here, one of the best ways to manifest that would be with our serve teams. We have all the tables outside. You join a team. You serve, the, you serve the Lord as you serve the body of Christ in your areas of passions that God has given in you. You know, for several of us, you, you come, particularly the collective gathering of the church, right? You come together and you pick up on certain things that are kind of like, like, oh, you know, we should tweak this or do this. Like you see stuff, I see stuff, somebody else sees stuff. And we're not all seeing the same thing because not the same things are passions of ours. So some of you are like, well, I don't need to give examples. That's pretty straightforward. And so if there's something that's really passionate of yours, uh, perhaps it's something that's a team. Perhaps it's really unique and it's not even a team. Such as Adriana, she asked, hey, can I make a painting for the last message? Yeah, that'd be amazing. I can't, you don't want me to make that painting. And so she makes this wonderful piece of art for us to worship as we think about God's mercy for us. And so as each has received a gift, God has created us. He gives us specific gifts. Let us be faithful stewards. But I also want to draw our attention as we think about God's creation. He is the creator. As we think about Nineveh, as we think about Jonah, as we think about ourselves and all the intricate elements, let us also remember that because he is the creator, not us, we must see value in all life. God created that life. You you know, you didn't. God fundamentally did. Even if it's your own children, biologically, he still is the one working behind the scenes to make that happen. So one of the best applications of that truth is we resist the temptation, whether that's internal or the enemy lying to us or the cultural pressures, we resist these temptations to to show discrimination of any kind. Now, when I say that, I mean quite broadly. Uh, I'm talking discrimination uh, known as ageism. That'd be one, whether it's somebody who's really old or somebody who's so little, they're still in the womb. Right? The whole spread, doesn't matter their age, they were made in God's image. Ableism, every person has value because they're made in God's image and he ascribes their value, not their contribution to society or what they suck from society, only what they take from it. Like we're not utilitarian people. Some countries function that way. Some people in our own country want to function that way. But we know from, from God's word, every person has value and meaning. It, there is no uh, like pecking order as if the ones who run this or run that have more value than somebody who only receives. Of course, racism across all skin colors and ethnicities, no matter what it may be there. And, and I'd even push back and, and just remind us of, of 
our, our local rivalries here, even you know here. So like Green versus Madison, Green versus Charlottesville. In sports, it's fun. Um, in life, it's it's dumb. Like so people are actually discriminatory against somebody who might live in a different county. That's really stupid. And so let's push back on that kind of dynamic. And that's intrinsic to who we are. You know, I read this biography just a couple weeks ago about the Episcopalian priest who planted all the churches in the mountains here about a hundred years ago. And um, you guys know like the Blue Ridge School, he's, you know, got that started. Uh, the, uh, the mission home down there in the green Almaro line. And then all the little churches that are stone, they almost look all the same look. And um, one's down here on 33, the stone chapel before you go up the mountain. All these different churches. So I was reading on and a whole bunch of takeaways from it. Particularly interesting to read about somebody who had done a lot of church planting work in this town about 100 years ago. Different, different like uh, era, but very similar calling to, to, a, a, you know, to my own. So that was interesting. But one of my uh, unexpected takeaways was when the park got formed and all the people were pushed off the mountain, they resettled around here. One of the most interesting things was reading all the different bio, uh, biographical statements of the discrimination that those in Standardsville showed those who were the mountain people or those who were like over here like to the mountain people. And it's like, we're all the same. Like today there's a lot of county unity, but the thought of like, well, you're from the mountains, you know, so therefore you might be less educated or you might, you know, this or that. That was interesting to me. I thought, you know, what's interesting, even for us as our own, our own community here, we have this tendency to be like, a, to fall into that trap of the haves and the haves nots, anything to make ourselves feel better uh, than somebody else. But that is all a myth, that sense of superiority, because we are all created in God's image. So we don't, say, we, we don't have the final say. We don't have the right to the final say of who is worthy of certain value, because God gives that value. God is the one who accepts. God is the one who says that this person is significant. And since God created, we will love, we will respect, and we will give dignity where he does not only uh, among the different things I mentioned, but I would say this, this is also applicable, if, if you hadn't thought of this already, this applies to showing dignity and love to somebody who has a different political bent or belief than you do. Like you still show them respect and love. You still show them respect and dignity, even if they have uh, sexual expressions that are against God's word and different than yours. Yeah, you still show them love and dignity, even though you can still say what is right. Think about Galatians 3, 26 to 28. Last verse on this under the section of God being in the creator. Galatians 3 says, for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. So there's neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free. There's no male or female for you are all one in Christ Jesus. You know, this is specifically describing the body of Christ and how we are all one. There's not the haves and the haves nots in the kingdom of God. So when it comes to Jonah, Jonah, why is it right for God to pity the Ninevites? Well, because God created them. It is his call to show that mercy, not yours, Jonah, right? So we see God is the creator. Secondly, why is it right that God would take pity on the Ninevites? Because he is the savior. He's the savior. So he has that right. You're not the savior, I'm not the savior, so we don't have that right. Jonah, you're not the savior, you're just a messenger. 
2 Peter 3, 9 says it this way. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness. That was a great verse just in and of itself. Man, I'll just stop right there. Uh, <laughs> I need that. But he is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. It is in line with God's will that these people would show repentance. There's a desire there. God wants his creation to worship him. It honors the Lord when mankind repents and turns toward him. That's not limited to the Jews of Jonah's day, as we see here with the Ninevites, but any person who turned to God was exalting God with their belief. Usually we have these unique stories, such as Rahab, who trusts God, back in the story in the book of Jonah, uh, Joshua. In this case, we have an entire city. It's really unique, particularly of how, uh, how ruthless the Assyrians were. It's, it's, it's a pretty great, uh, from a theological standpoint, it's a, it's a pillar of saying, when God steps down, all people will re respond to him. And when he pours out his mercy, there is overwhelming uh, desire to surrender to him, whether you, you know, know the Bible or whether you are just totally against him. He calls the shots on this. Now listen to how Paul describes God's heart for salvation. In 1 Timothy 2, 3 to 6, it says this, this is good and pleases God, our Savior, who wants everyone to be saved and to understand the truth. For there is one God and one mediator who can reconcile God and humanity, the man Christ Jesus. He gave his life to purchase freedom for everyone. This is the message God gave to the world at just the right time. All right, so it is in accordance with his good and his pleasing will to offer salvation to all mankind, not just some. If for some reason you feel like, you're part of the country club or the secret, you know, you know the secret handshake to get in heaven and that like stirs in you this sense of superiority or elitism, like you've totally missed the point of God's mercy. First Peter 3.18, so a moment ago I read Second Peter 3.9. This is First Peter 3.18. It says, Christ suffered for our sins once for all time. He never sinned, but he died for sinners to bring you safely home to God. He suffered physical death, but he was raised to life in the spirit. I read this so you can be reminded, what did Jesus actually do? And why is it that he offers us salvation? And why is it that all people have the opportunity to respond in faith? Well, it's because of what Jesus has done for us. And this salvation is available to all, but it, it only applies to those who receive it. You must respond with faith. This is true for the Ninevites and Jonah. This is true for us today and everybody in between, your own family members and, and everyone else. Therefore, let us seek personal reconciliation with God. Friends, if you're not born again, you must be for your own personal salvation. And let us also seek to share this story of redemption with anyone and everyone. Just as we received the message of the gospel, so let us pass that same message on to others. All right, so God is the savior that, that compels us to respond with belief in the salvation he offers, but also we wanna tell other people about this. 
You know, next week is our Harvest Festival. Uh, so, you know, not here. 10 o'clock, one service. You know, those of you who, you know, you're used to nine o'clock, so you get to uh, get there a little early. Help us get everything set up. That'd be great. So 10 o'clock, one service. Well, as I've been praying about this, and I'm just deeply praying for this service in different ways, God impressed on my heart so clearly a few weeks ago to uh, get more of those redemption Bibles that we have in the lobby, those free ones, like the big, the big things, and, and to get more of those. And uh, I was like, how many, Lord? And he said, 50. I'm like, all right, I'm gonna buy 50 more in faith that there are 50 people. Some of, you, some of those 50 might be here and others will be joining us, that they need to receive salvation next week. And so that's specifically what I'm praying for, for 50 people to respond to the gospel. We'll have a prayer tent, we'll have the Bibles, we'll have our prayer team, and other, you know, those of you gifted with evangelism, get you all over there. You can do the things that you're best at, and you just roll over there. And we're gonna see God respond. So I'm praying toward that end. I encourage you to pray toward that end. But there's a there's a passion there. Like we're not just gathering to hand out a bunch of candy and have inflatables because it's fun. Although it is fun. There, there's a, there's a, you know, uh, a keen sensitivity to the fact that there's gonna be people who will be worshiping with us that morning who have no clue that they need God's mercy. And what we're gonna walk through next week, which I'm still praying about what the, what the message will be, as, as we work through it, my prayer is that God will use the truth of his word and, and the depth of his mercy to just compel people to respond to him. So we see God is savior in this, in this passage as well. Why is it right that God would pity the Ninevites? Well, because God offered salvation to them. Jonah didn't. God himself, as the second person of the Trinity, died on the cross to satisfy God the Father's wrath. And Jesus gave us the opportunity to respond in faith and receive salvation. So no, Jonah, you don't get the, uh, the opportunity to have pity on the people that you didn't save. That's God's role. Now, before we move to the third characteristic, I wanna read for you this, this description that Jesus gave about the kingdom of heaven. This is fantastic. I, 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 I would love to preach more on this, but I'm just gonna read it and just let it kind of settle. I think we'll read it and see where it, where it goes. Matthew 18, starting in verse 23. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven can be compared to a king who decided to bring his accounts up to date with the servants who had borrowed money from him. In the process, one of his debtors was brought in and owed him millions of dollars. He couldn't pay, so his master ordered that he be sold, along with his wife and his children and everything he owned, to pay that debt. But the man fell down before his master and begged him, please be patient with me and I'll pay it all. Then the master was filled with pity for him and released him and forgave his debt. Now, there's actually a second part to that whole story and that's the second part is probably the, the, the actual purpose of that text in this story. But I stop here to just allow us to see the depth of God's mercy and in the same way that the master took pity on this person, so God does toward us and offers us salvation to save us from our debt that's beyond millions of dollars. It's, it's trillions of dollars, right? You're, it's even beyond that, but that you have a debt that you cannot pay, uh, an eternal debt that you cannot pay, and only Jesus could, and that's what he did for us. Now, thirdly and lastly, why is it right that God would take pity on the Ninevites? And it's because God is the Lord, 
No, and I, I say Lord with all caps on purpose. If you, if you read it in your Bibles and if you see that, sometimes you're like, hey, why is his name all caps? And sometimes it's lowercase um, O-R-D in the name Lord. And it's because of the original languages and what is said there. Well, all caps is the name Yahweh. In the Old Testament, every time God used that name, the English translations will use all caps to help us signify that. And it... It evokes all sorts of things regarding who Yahweh is, right? Yahweh, and Trent was saying this while we were worshiping, but like Yahweh, uh, Jireh, right? The Lord who provides, um, and all the different names. But specifically, when I think about God is the Lord, and this is why it is right that he should take pity. I, I'm specifically referring to because he is Lord, we worship him fully, with the best that we have, we worship him. This evokes a holy sensation of worship where he, he declares, I am. And it's like, whoa, okay. Yeah, Moses at the, at the uh, burning bush and takes his sandals off and he's just having that moment before God. The holy worship. So God is creator, he is savior, and he is Lord. He is Lord. He is the only one worthy of our heart's worship. I want to read for you a few different verses to help strengthen that and, and why I'm using this example. Isaiah 25, one says, O Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise your name for you have done wonderful things, plans formed of old, faithful, and sure. You know, as the Ninevites would have done, our worship to the Lord is one that's full of praise, one that exalts his name. And so Psalm 95, 6 says, Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. And this praise is not limited to one person or one tribe, but it is available to everyone who calls on the name of the Lord. Psalm 150, the last psalm in the, in, in the book of Psalms, it says this, Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord the Lord. And as we think about responding to Yahweh with full worship, we recognize that worship is not merely praises, not merely songs that we sing or things like that, but it's actually a posture of our heart. It goes deeper than our own words. Romans 12.1 says in the second half here, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, ho sacrifice holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Not only does God save us, but he is glorified when we magnify his name, specifically using these two elements because Jesus says it in spirit and in truth. Jesus to the woman at the well, he said, God is spirit in John 4. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And this reminds us of just, just how we can extol him with all that we have. And then again, in spirit and truth. And I also want to draw our attention to the fact that God is jealous for our worship. It's not like, well, hey, you know, if they want to worship me, yeah, sure. Hey, that's a good day. No, God wants our worship. He fights for our worship, and Satan actually tries to get us to not worship God and to, you know, worship, worship Satan. Listen to, to Luke 4. This is when Jesus was in the desert, and Satan is tempting him with, a, Satan tempts Jesus with authority, and says, if, if Jesus just bows down to Satan, then he'll give him all this authority. Well, Jesus said this in Luke 4, 8, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. There are all sorts of things that fight for what we worship, what we put on the throne of our life, what we prioritize with our 
with our mind, our hands, our heart, and it needs to be God, God alone, at, this, at the very center of all that stuff. And all these things, each one of us has different things, so we'll try to um, pull for that. And last verse for us here is I think about God honoring worship beginning with our heart. I think about this hill and the, and the mountains here and just and us getting this uh, property. We close on November 7th, which is right around the corner. It's crazy. Listen to this psalm. This is like one of those psalms that might mark our church in certain ways, at least the services leading up here in the next few weeks. Psalm 24, three and four, it's wonderful. It says, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false? Friends, our worship begins with our heart, the posture of our heart, a pure heart and pure hands and, and not just lip service. I mean, any of us can stand around and like cheer, but do you mean it? You know, do you, does it really mark what you believe? Our county is widely in spiritual darkness the way that Nineveh was in this moment. And my desire for our community is to be saved, but it's not just to be saved. To be honest, it's actually deeper than that. Like salvation feels like a byproduct of what the actual prayer is. The prayer is that our friends, our community, people we love, people we can't stand, all of them, that we would worship him, worship God fully. That this town would be one that is marked by worship, full worship, um, pure worship, one that magnifies God because he is creator. He is the savior. He is the Lord. And so we just want to exalt him here in this mountain town. I always look out here when I'm preaching. I'm like watching. I realize I, I look at the mountains a lot more than I'm looking at all of you guys while I'm talking about this. Like may our town be known as one that fears and exalts the Lord of all lords. We want his name to be magnified in the mountains. And so I go back to Jonah. If I was, Jonah, why is it right that God would pity the Ninevites? Because he is Lord over them. God is the one who is worthy of their worship, not Jonah, not false gods or other beliefs and belief systems. All right, so there we have it. God has the right to show mercy on anyone he chooses because he's the creator. He, he fine-tuned them in the womb. He knows exactly how and, and, and who they will be. He is their savior. Jesus died on that cross. That was awful. That was gory. That was intense. And it took on God's wrath. It wasn't just a physical death. There was way more going on there. And he's also a Lord. Case closed. Well, he's Lord, then we worship. I mean, it's just like, it covers all, all those three, those three names <clears throat> stand on their own. And so do you know him? <clears throat> do you walk with him? Do you surrender to him? You know, as we re respond this morning, and, and Trenton, you and the team can come on up here to lead us in this last song. As we respond, I'm compelled to ask you if you would, if you have, been made right with God through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. So if you're not born again today, will you acknowledge that God is your creator? Will you believe that God is your savior? Will you confess that God is the Lord? We've learned throughout this series and we remind ourselves one last time that God's mercy is abundantly far reaching. So will you receive it? And, and, and I urge you not to delay in that. If God's prompting your heart, respond. Respond while you can. Respond while your heart is not hardened. Respond while mercy is here and present, while he is knocking on the door of your heart. Respond to him. And we'll begin to experience his mercy across the board. All right, let's pray.